0: Welcome back to Linux Reality. This is Chess Griffin and this is episode 65 and in this episode we are going to talk about something that a lot of people have asked me about in the forums and my email and that's this linksic. This Linksys N-S-L-U-2, this device I keep mentioning, I've mentioned it for the past six months or so. I got my first one around Christmas time last year, and I've mentioned it from time to time. And it seems like almost once a week, somebody in the forums posts a question asking sort of, you know, for some clarification on what this device is. So I thought it would be helpful to talk about it and to talk about the different types of firmwares and to kind of discuss the installation of Debian uh, which is what i 've done on this device, and just to kind of point out some of the you know the issues i 've run into and just some of the little tips and tricks on on how to get this thing going, uh, so I think that 's what we 're going to talk about. Uh, also wanted to mention again that this gizmo account seems to be working pretty well, but for some reason it is cutting off uh, some voicemails i don 't know why that is, uh, but i 'm um, going to keep playing with it, and you know please do please do call it if you can it's uh, The number is one two oh two five five two one five two five or you can uh, you know just look up my uh, gizmo account which is Linux reality and as I mentioned last week we've got the new IRC channel it's on freenode.net, and it's uh, hash Linux reality and uh, it's you know starting off slow we're getting a few people in there I'm trying to hang hang uh, hang out in that channel uh, as best I can from time to time I'm trying to get on there a few times a week so if you hop on over there's a you know pretty good chance I'll be in there at some point uh, so please do check that out as well. And I think that's going to do it for the introductions. Oh, I did want to mention up front, though, uh, one last thing. I am all set for the Ohio Linux Fest. I've got, uh, you know, I signed up. I got my hotel reservation, got, you know, the whole nine yards taken care of. So that's at the end of September, and I'm really looking forward to it. And if there's a way you can make it, please do so. Just Google for Ohio Linux Fest. I think it'll be a whole lot of fun. I can't wait to go, and I can't wait to meet as many of you as are able to make it. So I think it'll be very cool. All right, let's get right to it. The Lynxis, gosh, I can't even say it. The Lynxis NSLU2. Okay, the Lynxis <laughs> NSLU2, or the slug, as they call it. I guess it's because it's got SLU in it. So it's sort of affectionately known as the slug. Um, the Lynxus slug is a it's a little device. It is a solid state, uh, low cost network storage device. And the idea is it costs about a hundred dollars us dollars. And, uh, the, the purpose of this little device, it's, it, it's really small. I mean, it's the size of maybe a, maybe a, you know, a broadband router, I mean, a a, a, a cable modem, or maybe the size of a small paperback book, or maybe the size of a USB drive, you know, an external USB drive, something like that. It's very small, very lightweight, very low power, uh, very quiet. I mean, it's silent. It doesn't have any moving parts inside it. It's got an Ethernet port, and it's got two USB ports. And the idea behind it is that you would hook up a USB external drive, and you'd stick it on your network because it has an Ethernet port. And using the the built-in Linksys firmware, you would navigate to the web interface, and you could set it up to act as a little file server and a little storage server on your, on your network. And uh, the Linksys uh, web-based interface is pretty standard. If you're used to any Linksys devices, maybe Linksys routers, it's kind of got that black and blue and white sort of web-based interface. And you know, you can go in and log in and set up a, you know, change your password and, and set permissions on the files and you can just do all kinds of stuff related to the network storage capabilities of this device. That's the way it works sort of out of the box. Well, it turns out that this device runs Linux, and I I don't know if they've open sourced some stuff, but they've made it hackable, just like the Linksys um, wireless router, which is the I've got a Linksys wireless router, a a uh, WRT54G, I think that's right. And it's a, you know, it's a hackable router, and you can put open source firmware on it. Well, it's the same idea with this little device. And there are uh, three main firmwares that you can download and you know you flash the device with updated firmware. Just like if you go into the Linksys web interface, you can, you know, download updated firmware from the Linksys site and flash it and get some updated capabilities. Well, these third-party firmwares are available for you to download and flash onto the device. Now if you do this, of course, you're gonna be overriding the Linksys firmware that comes with the device, but that's sort of the idea. Uh, because these open source firmwares add a lot of capability uh, to the device much more so than it was originally intended to to handle, <laughs> uh, so the three main firmwares uh, the first one is called unslung the second one is called Slug OS and the third one is debian and there are some others as well, but uh, those are the three main ones that you keep coming across and of course there 's a website devoted to this project that i 'll put a link to in the show notes, but the unslung firmware this is i 've never tried this one but it 's supposed to be very easy for beginners it 's supposed to be i think it really sticks almost with the linksys firmware it It tracks the linksys kernel the Linksys uses linux kernel two point four point twenty two so it attempts to keep you know compatibility with the built in with the standard firmware it, but it has some additional packages that according to this one website, it has about eight hundred or so additional packages, so you can install additional software to add additional capabilities to this little device. Uh, The Slug OS firmware, which is the second of the three firmwares, there are several variants of this Slug OS, including, I think, a Gen 2 one. Uh, Most of them track the 2.6.16 Linux kernel, and they have about 4,000 packages. The Gen 2 version has about 12,000 packages that you can download and install on the Slug OS version of the firmware. And then the third version is Debian, regular good old Debian. Debian uh, runs on many different architectures, not just the, uh, you know, 386 and 64-bit um, computers that most of us have, but it runs on Sparks and it runs on, you know, all different kinds of firmware. I mean hardware, including ARM processors. And that's what this little device has, is an ARM processor. So you can install, and I'll go through. You know, I'll sort of explain how to do this, but you can install regular Debian, and they have a version for. They have Debian Edge, which is the most recently released uh, stable version of Debian, came out at the beginning of April. Uh, so before I go through that, that uh, in, you know the installation steps, uh, basically the you know I guess some people might ask, well, what can you do with this thing and. I mean, the ideas are, are endless. They're, the, the website for the project, the overall, it's basically nslu2-linux.org is the main website that has information about this project in general. And they, of course, provide links to the various firmwares you can download. But there's, there's an ideas list. There's something that's really cool called a slug success stories page where users post what they use this device for. And people use it for anything and almost everything. I mean, obviously file servers, it can serve as a, I mean, it can be a print server. It could be a music server. It can, people are running asterisk on this thing, which is a voiceover IP server, Um, you know, backup server, uh, you know, people use it to run, you know, repositories. Like I mentioned in my wrap up episode, you can kind of mirror a repository for Debian or Ubuntu or whatever. Uh, People use it for DNS. People use it for email. I mean, it can, I mean, almost anything you can you know, make a server out of, you can do with this device for the most part. Some types of servers are going to be more intensive. I mean, you can run Apache. You can run Lighty, which is that other web server. So it can be a web server. You can host a website on it and put your blog on it. People run WordPress on this thing. Uh, it's amazing what this little thing can do. Uh, So check out the uh, linksys or the nslu2-linux.org site for ideas because, I mean, the ideas really are endless. It's really just a a device that you can use as a Linux server and do anything that any other Linux box can do. Uh, So it's really cool. Now, the Debian installation, there's a great page that I'll also link to that that really explains everything you need to know about how to install Debian on this thing. Uh, There's two things you need what to start off with. One thing for sure and one thing maybe. The first one, of course, is the Debian firmware. And this one website provides links to uh, two different kinds. There's two different kinds of Debian firmware, both for Debian Edge. The first one is a free version, meaning free free software version, and there's a non-free version. And the issue here is that this particular device, the ethernet uh, driver for this device is a non-free driver. I don't remember exactly what make it is, but um but the, the driver that's needed to power the Ethernet port is a non free piece of software. So of course Debian does not provide any non free software by default. So the standard Debian uh you know uh firmware file that you can download from the Debian website is not going to be the easiest to get going. You can use it, but it would it will require you to get a, a USB uh, Ethernet device, okay, that you plug into one of the two USB ports and use that as the Ethernet dev- as the Ethernet port rather than the built-in Ethernet. But apparently that that is kind of a hassle. You've got to change cables back and forth because it has to be in the first port at one point, and then you've got to put the hard drive in the first port later on. And term- I mean, you know, the USB ports. So the other firmware is a little bit easier to install, and it's the non-free one. And it's provided by a third party, and that's the one I've used. And that contains the non-free driver for the built-in Ethernet port. So the first thing you'll need to download is either one of those two Debian firmwares. And I've used the non-free one. And uh, when you download it, and I think it's a zip file, once you unpack it, I think it's got two things in it. It's got a text file, like a readme file. And then it's got a .bin file, and it's di. Dash, nslu2.bin and that's the firmware that's the actual firmware now the second thing that you'll need and this is a maybe it depends if this is the first time you're flashing the device or not if it's the first time you're going to flash the device then you can log into the linksys web interface that comes with the device you know you've got it powered up and you've got it connected to your network with just an ethernet cable well, you can go into the the Linksys web interface device and somewhere in there, you know, probably under administration or something, there's a place where you can flash the firmware and you can, you know, it'll usually have a little button where you can navigate to the location where you've saved this bin file and you can start an upgrade, a, f- a firmware upgrade within the web interface. Obviously the whole, I mean, the reason that's there is so you can upgrade the Linksys firmware that comes with it as they, as Linksys releases new firmware, you can go into the web interface and you know, update that way. So you can update to the Debian firmware that way. But of course, the first time after you do it the first time, then the Linksys web-based interface is no longer there. So uh, the other way to flash the firmware, this is the the second thing that you might need is a little command line tool called upslug2. That's UPSLUG2. And there's a package for Ubuntu and Debian. And I think maybe Fedora. There's a few of them and they're listed on the Debian slug website. Uh, but if not, there's also, of course, a tarball that you can download and build. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting at my Arch Linux box. That's what I've got you currently. And there's not an Arch package for this. So I've ha- I had to build it. I had to compile it from source, but it was, it's a very easy compile. I mean, it's basically, you know, configure and make, I don't even think you need to do make install or anything like that. I don't remember, but it's very easy compile installation. It doesn't have any dependencies or anything like that. So, uh, you know, you could use this command line tool to flash the slug. And if you're going to do that, it's very easy. Once you've got this up slug to uh, firmware flashing tool installed, then what you would do is you would navigate into the folder where you've got the, the Debian bin file and you will type up slug to, this is as root up slug to dash. I mean, space dash I for install space and then the name of that bin file so di-nslu2.bin uh, and that will flash the device and it's just automated i mean it's very simple it's command line it takes about five minutes and it just does it e- very easily and when it's all done it will say that it's going to reboot now so either way you're going to flash the device either using the built-in linksys web interface or using this upslug2 command line tool and once it's flashed the device will reboot And when it reboots, that's when you want to connect your USB drive. I should have said a minute ago, you need to disconnect your USB drive while it's flashing. So while it's rebooting the first time, you connect your USB drive and power up your USB drive. And it will take about five to seven minutes to boot the first time so you know you've got it sitting there and uh you know you're not connected to it or anything like that you just got to wait five seven minutes and when it's done booting it's going to beep kind of (laughs) loudly like three times and that will let you know it's done booting the installation you know or the installer and then you want to use ssh this whole thing is going to be done over ssh and i recommend starting a screen session to uh, then use SSH because that way you can disconnect from your screen session and reconnect, you know, maybe from work or from your laptop in the other room to check on things and that that kind of thing. But that's just a tip that I've always used SSH to do this kind of thing. So either way you run SSH and what you're gonna do is do SSH space installer. Okay, that's the name of the the installation user because you have to, of course, SSH in as a user. You're not gonna SSH in as root because nothing's been installed yet. The only u- user available is a user called Installer. So you do SSH, space, Installer, at, and then the IP address of your device. So, the you know, one way to find the, uh, the IP address, I mean, it uses DHCP, so when it reboots, it's going to just grab a, it's, it's just going to get an IP from your router, is to, you can use a command line tool called NMAP. And you can run that and, uh, and, and look for all the devices on your network. And it will you, know, you can probably tell which one is new. You can just do NMAP space. Let's say your network is 192.168. You would just do NMAP space 192.168.1 dot, and then an asterisk. And it will list all the devices connected on your LAN. And you can just look for the one that's new and see the IP address. So you do SSH space installer at and then the IP address of the device and then you'll see it's pretty standard Debian, you know, nCurses-based installation. It's very straightforward. The only two things you'll need to, you know, pay attention to that I'll mention here is the installer components and the partitioning. When you get to the screen about installer components, there's a list of, of modules and other tools that can be loaded by the installer if necessary. See, the issue with this is that i mean there 's very little RAM on this device i don 't remember if it 's four or sixteen megabytes i mean it 's very small, so there 's not a lot of room to run the installation so the uh, the installer doesn 't load everything right off the bat it just loads the bare minimum so you 've got to manually select some additional components to load in order to get this thing installed and This debian installation page that i 'll link to lists the five components you have to install one is. The ext3-modules component. One is the partman-auto, partman-ext3, scuzzy-core-modules, and usb-storage-modules. Again, don't worry about remembering that. Again, just you know, this page, this this that goes to the installation of Debian is very easy to understand. and It's not very long, and it lists those five things. So you select those five components, and then continue. And then when you get to the partitioning stage, the only other thing you'll need to think about is how to partition, obviously. And let me pause here and say that, you know, you can run this whole thing off a flash stick, you know, a USB flash stick if you want. And I have done that, actually. I've run Debian entirely off a 2-gigabyte USB flash stick. I think you need at least a 2-gig flash stick for this thing to work. Um, The only catch with that, though, is that this thing is going to use your swap space. You know, a lot nowadays, Our most of our computers have a lot of RAM and a lot of disk space and they're pretty fast and they don't really, you know, whenever we install something, it always makes a swap partition, but they're rarely used. Uh, the swap partition is there in case the memory runs out and it needs to write some memory stuff to disk. It has a, a place to do that. That's what the swap space is. Windows uses swap and I think most operating system use swap. Uh, Now, the the slug is going to use it, so you definitely need to have a large enough swap space of at least, I think they recommend, 128 megabytes. But here's the issue with running the whole thing on a flash stick is that, I mean, uh, flash sticks don't last forever, and when they're written to a lot, they tend to wear out pretty quickly. So I have read that people who run this thing entirely on a flash stick, that the flash stick ends up dying after a period of time, you know, sooner than you would think. So one possibility is to you can put everything on the flash stick and still have a USB drive, maybe for your data only, and just create a little swap partition on the hard drive, on the external USB hard drive. And when you set up your partitions, you can have all your main partitions on the USB stick, put your swap partition on the USB drive, the external drive, and then put your other, you know, home or data or whatever also on the external USB drive. So that's one little tidbit. Or you can just use an external USB drive for the whole thing, and that's what I've done. I used to, again, I used to use the USB stick, and I didn't. After I got so used to using it, I loved having it. I started worrying about the long-term effects of it, and I didn't want something that's going to die in a year. So I've reinstalled entirely onto onto a USB drive, and now it's perfect. It just runs like a normal computer, (laughs) Um, and I don't need to worry about the rewrites on the hard drive. Uh, so either way, when you get to the partitioning stage, you know, select your USB uh, stick or your external USB drive and do your partitioning. And, and, you know, you can do an It'll Debian gives you a sort of an automatic partitioning, you know, or guided partitioning. I think they call it where it will automatically create partitions for you. And that's fine. If you want to do that, I always prefer to make my own partitions. And I, I, something I do on all my servers and this, that includes this device is I like to create lots of, I mean I create separate partitions for most of the you know pieces of the file system. On my home computers, my regular desktops, I don't do this as often, but on my servers I create a separate root partition, a separate boot partition for the kernel, that doesn't have to be very big. Um a separate home partition, a separate uh usr uh, partition, a separate temp and a separate var. So that's just my personal preference. I mean, I usually make temp kind of small. I make var a little bit bigger, depending what I'm going to use var for. Var might hold your web pages or your databases, things like that. Uh, slash USR is going to have most of the packages that you install. And of course, home is your home directory. So if you end up keeping a lot of data in a home directory, you're going to want to make that kind of big. Uh, but you just have to kind of you know play with that and see what you feel comfortable with, or just do the automatic partitioning either way. Uh, but anyway, once you're done with the partitioning, then you just go through the rest of the questions. And, it, and at that point, I think it's a regular Debian install. I mean, it will, you know, ask you for the root password. It will, it will ask you to set up a user. It will ask you, you know, it gets to that screen where it gives you sort of predefined package, you know, collections, you know, desktop or laptop or web server or whatever. Or you can just select minimal installation. And that's what I always pick is just minimal and uh, then you just go through that, and then it will install. And the installation takes a while. The, the guide says it takes two and a half hours. I don't remember it taking quite that long, but it, it took a while. I mean, much longer than the normal computer. It's just slow. And uh, it took at least an hour and a half, and it probably took close to two hours. Uh, but anyway, once it's done, it will reboot. And uh, then you can just SSH in as root or as the regular user that you created. And then you have regular Debian etch. And I would recommend giving it a static IP. So the fir- one of the first things I always do is go into slash Etsy slash network slash interfaces, and I configure the main uh, Ethernet, I think, you know, ETH zero, and give it a static IP. And there's lots of how-tos on how to do that. It's very pretty straightforward. Uh, and I like to have a st- static IP with that. And then you're done. And you can just use old regular good old Debian and use aptitude or apt-get to install packages and configure your server. And this thing's amazing. Like I said, it's quiet. It's such low power. I mean, it's much lower power than a regular computer is and it works really well. The only other little caveat that I've read, I haven't tried this is that according to the installation guides, uh, it doesn't do LVM or RAID very well. Uh, So if you plan to use the logical volume management or any kind of RAID array, that I don't think this device is quite capable of handling that. I think people have done it, and there's some, you know, mixed stories, but I think the recommendation is that you, don't, that you don't do that on this device. But other than that, you can, I mean, the sky's the limit as to what you can use this thing for. So it's very cool. I highly recommend it. I'm probably going to get a second one. There are people that have many, you know, many different ones because they use it for different things, and uh, I just, I'm in love with this thing, so... Just wanted to talk about that. Hope you enjoyed that. And now we do have one listener tip, a lot of listener uh, voicemail, which is great. And I've got some emails that I'll read as well. So let's check out the listener tip first.
1: Hi, this is Simon from Calgary. I've got a user tip from the Lent Reality Show. If people want to call and leave a a tip or leave a message, they can do this for free via the, the SIP Broker PSTN access line. So go to sipbroker.com, click on the PSTN listings, choose one nearest to you, and you can then dial that. At the voice prompt, you then dial Jesse's uh, SIP number, which is one 151 6346 and message. And uh, when you're finished, hang up and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, bye.
2: Hi, Chess. This is Adam from Detroit, and I'm calling about your home server series. I've only one desktop, and it's a seven-year-old Pentium 3 machine, but I've been running Linux for three years, and I have no need for newer hardware, as Ubuntu 6.06 works like a charm. Since I have just this one main machine, I don't have a separate box to act as a home server, but that doesn't mean the info in your home server series isn't helpful. I have the open SSH server running on my Ubuntu box with a non-standard port open through my hardware router, and this very limited exposure to the outside world is all I need. I do run Apache, not exposed through the router, and use wiki software to maintain my personal notes. So while it's nice to use it while I'm sitting at my desktop, I can also SSH in and use a console browser like Elinks to get at the wiki. I also dabble in PHP so I can do this from anywhere in the world via SSH while not exposing any of my bad PHP code to the big bad internet. I don't have any special file sharing setup since I just use good old SCP and SFTP but I can recommend two audio servers, Icecast and Slim Server. I've used Icecast to broadcast our log meetings at school and I found it pretty easy and was told that it sounded good on the other end even with our crummy equipment. What I liked most was that you could do the whole thing with a couple of console commands without even starting X. I've also used Slim Server to stream my music inside the home network. It has a web interface, and it works pretty well. Last, I use an application called rdiff-backup to back up my data onto an external hard drive. I'm pretty sure it's just a Python front-end to rsync, but I do know that it does the job for me and doesn't require any fancy, fancy server setups. So even if you don't have five machines sitting in the closet somewhere, you can use server software to do a lot of things on your main machine, even if this main machine isn't state-of-the-art. While I've got you on the line, I might point out that while the Gizmo Project is better than Skype, (coughs) from a freedom standpoint, because it uses open standards and protocols, it's still not open-source software. There are plenty of choices for open-source SIP softphones, and as far as I can tell, they all interoperate. For example, I'm using Akiga, E-K-I-G-A, under GNOME right now, to call your Gizmo Project voicemail, and Akiga is totally open-source. You have a great show, and I look forward to it every week. I'm not a noob, but I learned something from all your shows. Most of all, I learned what it means to explain something clearly, since you're an expert at that. Keep up the great work, and I'll try to send more audio in the future.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Adam. That was a very, very awesome uh, voicemail. Thanks very much for that. Yeah, I did know that about uh, Gizmo, that it was not open source. I think I had mentioned that when I was kind of first talking about the different alternatives. Um, And the reason I know that is because... There's uh, there's people who are trying to get Gizmo to create a cl- you know create a client for FreeBSD and some of the other non you know Linux operating systems and the Gizmo project hasn't done so. And people are complaining in the forums that because it's not an open source uh, project that of course they can't make the can't get the source code and build it themselves. Uh, but I just, what was interesting to me about Gizmo is the fact that it uses at least the open protocol. So people can use things like Akiga, uh, as a, you know, sip phone to, to call the Gizmo account that I have. So that's what I like as opposed to Skype, where I think you can only use Skype to call Skype. It's gotta be, you know, the same, the same protocol or the same client. So, uh, but excellent, excellent audio uh, feedback. Thanks very much, Adam.
1: Hi, Jess. Just, just wanted to drop you a quick note. This is Will from Moscow, Idaho. Uh, thank you for your series on configuring servers. You've inspired me to get my own Linksys NSLU-2 device. Excellent. and a small USB-2 hard drive, and I've connected it up and made it my own home server and running a variety of applications on it. You've inspired me so that I uh, the most recent episode on R-Sync. So I'm using it as my backup server. also have using it as a iTunes music server using the MT-DAP uh, daemon. It's also storing torrents and uh, collecting torrents overnight. And I also use it for uh, IRC. And so it's been uh, very fun, very exciting, very interesting. Thank you again. Keep up the good work. Bye now.
0: All right. Well, that's awesome. See, that's perfect timing. Um, that that is just great. I'm glad that people are you know have enjoyed that server series and are using you know testing out the slug. And um, hopefully, this episode will will help as well. I just I just think it's a really nifty nifty device. And as you know, as he mentioned, as Will mentioned, all those things that he does with his slug. It's just cool. It's very, it's very uh, fun to play with. Here is an audio comment from Jay.
3: Hello, Jess. Jay from Philly here. And hello to all Linux Reality listeners. I've been using Linux on and off for about five years now. My main background is in Microsoft networking and SQL database. I routinely download and install the latest distributions, my favorite being Ubuntu and its derivatives. I work at a university in the city as an IT administrator. There I preach and routinely recommend the use of free and open source software. One niche Ubuntu has found for itself is in the employ as a Kiosk. Zubuntu, the stripped-down XFCE version, is great for bringing old PCs and Macs back to life as an internet device. Students can log on to the web, check their email, look up a quick fact, or do whatever they like without their overhead and risk of closed source proprietary software. Another great free and open source application that works very well on Linux, especially Ubuntu, is MediaWiki. Several departments here use a LAMP server with MediaWiki for their academic needs. It's a very cheap and very easy way to provide computer assisted memory. I want to thank you for a great show, Chess. Keep up the good work. Keep them coming.
0: Thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate that.
3: Hi, Jess. This is John from Northeast Philadelphia. I'm a longtime listener to your
0: podcast. I just had a quick question. Do you foresee in the near future doing any kind of podcast on Linspire or Freespire? I just
3: thought
1: I'd you know, ask that. All right. Keep up the good work. It's going to be great podcast, and thanks a lot.
0: Well, thanks, John. Yes, I definitely plan to... Uh, talk about Linspire and Freespire. I've got a few others on the deck uh, as well, including Fedora and the new version of PC Linux OS. For Linspire and Freespire, I'm actually kind of waiting for them to release a new version, especially Freespire. I understand that they were working on a new version that I think is supposed to come out at some point this year. So I'm kind of yeah, you know, I'd really like to kind of see that new release because the one they've got out now is a little dated, and uh, it'd be fun to talk about some of the cool, new, you know, new things that they're doing in that in that distribution. So, uh, but that's definitely on the plate.
2: Hey, chess, it's Jonathan Isler. Uh, I've been listening for a long time and really love a lot of you. Um, recently, you had asked if anyone knew of any good um, IP-based phone services that allowed you also to record the calls. Um, I'm actually currently at a uh, client of mine I do some IT work for. And they're using a service called Aptella. That's A-P-T-E-L-A. And aptela.com is the, uh, the name of it. I know they definitely allow you to record. Um, as you can tell by the quality, the, the, uh, pretty good. Um, so I don't know. Might want to give that a try. Uh, great show. Keep up the great work. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
0: Excellent. Thanks for that recommendation. I, I definitely encourage more recommendations like that. I mean, I'm using gizmo and it seems to be working okay, but it, it ha- does have some issues with cutting off these voicemails and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, I am definitely open to trying some of these other services. And th- the biggest thing for me is I, as he mentioned, I do want it to be able to record because that's how I plan to hopefully do some of these, you know, these interviews is I want to be able to go through a service so I can record the call uh, easily. And You know, and also have a way to where I can call out such that if the person I'm interviewing doesn't have, you know, any kind of SIP service, I can just call their regular phone number, regular landline or cell phone. And I, you know, I understand that most services, including Gizmo, charge you for calls out like that. And that's fine. I'm happy to pay for that. I just wanted to kind of have all of those features. So thanks for that recommendation. I'm definitely going to check them out because Gizmo is working okay. But, you know, I I like to have a backup as well if for some reason it's just not – this doesn't seem to be working. So Here are some emails. I just got a few I'll read this week since I had a lot of audio email or audio comments. First one's from John. Uh, John says, Chess, I wanted to thank you for having such a great Linux cast. I've learned so much from your show. I just spent six months in Elizabeth City, North Carolina with the Coast Guard. As you can imagine, this West Coast San Franciscan felt a little out of his element. <laughs> so I spent the majority of my time toying around with different distros, and I finally settled on my old favorite, Slackware and Arch, my new favorite. I just picked up some old surplus servers, and I'm in the process of configuring an MP3 server and a BSD firewall. Your show has, has helped me greatly, and you're the only Linux podcast my wife can stand while we're driving. So we both listen to your show quite often. Um, Take care and keep up the great work from John. Very cool, John. Thanks very much. And I'm glad your wife can stand the podcast. I've actually had a lot of emails from people saying that their significant others are able to listen to the show. So that's very cool. Uh, So big shout out to all the significant others out there. Uh, Here's an email from Lucas. Lucas says, Hey chess, I did a quick search of the show archives and couldn't find anything regarding regular expressions. This is something I'd love to dive into, but haven't found an easy introduction yet. Perhaps your expert guidance could assist your listeners on this ostensibly daunting topic. I've learned a lot from your show and found myself exploring new areas of Linux I would have otherwise overlooked. Thank you for all your hard work. Uh, Lucas, that is a good good idea. Um, I hadn't. That's one I had not thought of, and I'm certainly no regular expressions expert. That is a very confusing topic, uh, but it probably would be a good idea to have sort of a basic introduction to it. So good idea, Lucas. Thanks. Here's one from Michael. Michael says, I've been been enjoying the podcast since the beginning. Do you think you could cover on one of the shows syncing Pocket PC with Evolution or Palm syncing for those of us using Windows at work because there's no choice but Linux at home? I would love to save the keystrokes of maintaining two address books. Thanks and great show, Michael. Uh, Michael, yeah, I can try to do that. I don't have a pocket PC, so you know, um, I, I don't really know much about how that works, syncing that with Evolution. I did recently get, as a hand-me-down, a Poem uh, Trio 650. My brother gave it to me a few weeks ago. He was done with it. And so I've been playing around with that, and I know that that's supported pretty, pretty well in Linux. So uh, when I get comfortable with it and figure out how to sync it, maybe I'll do a show on that. So uh, thanks for the suggestion, Michael. Uh, All right. And then the last email for this week, this is from Andrew. Andrew says, "Um, dear Mr. Griffin chess. Okay. First of all, Andrew, please don't, you don't need to call me Mr. Griffin. (laughs) Just, just chess. Um, uh, I used to have windows XP on my computer, but you have inspired me to switch to Linux. Last Saturday, I downloaded Ubuntu 7.04 backed up all my data and installed it. So I have been working with Linux for less than a week. I've been struggling to install to install TrueCrypt so far without success. Is having a firewall, antivirus software, anti-spyware software, and other security things on your computer as necessary in Linux as in Windows? Perhaps you could do a show on the topic. Hope it hasn't already been covered. Kind regards, uh, uh, Andrew. Andrew, uh, not really. I haven't really covered those topics, and I, that's probably something I should I should do. Um, but uh, those are excellent questions, and those are very common questions. I would say, it, well, I mean, obviously, it depends on the situation, but I think the most important thing is to be behind some kind of NAT router. So, just a basic off-the-shelf Linksys or Netgear router uh, that does, you know, that does NAT. That's very important. You don't want to be directly connected to the internet, no matter what operating system you run. So I think that's the very first thing. And then these other things, the firewall and I, you know, I assume you kind of mean like a software firewall that runs on your on your desktop and antivirus software, anti-spyware software. Essentially the answer is no, you don't necessarily need those things or I should say they're not as necessary in Linux as in Windows. I'm not saying don't ever use them. It depends on every on each person's comfort level. I've heard, you know, Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson who don't use Linux, they also do not use a firewall. I don't know about antivirus or anti-spyware software, but um, having a, a client-side software firewall, I think if you're behind a NAT router, its impact is minimal. Um, I don't run a software firewall on my, any of my computers. Um, as far as antivirus and anti-spyware, I don't run them as well. Uh, I don't even know. I know there's antivirus software for 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 Linux, and I guess it does anti spyware too. There's like ClamAV, but that's sort of a server solution. That's something that you would run on on an email server. I think. I mean, you can run it on your client on your desktop, but I think traditionally it's usually run on the server. I have run ClamAV and Spam Assassin on my own email server, and there probably are tools uh, for sort of you know client. Uh, sort of tools. I I've, I know I've come across them before. So maybe what I ought to do is flesh this out a little bit more and uh, do a show on this. But for the time being, if you're behind a NAT router and if the NAT router does does has any has any kind of firewall in it, like most modern NAT routers do, I think you're fine for the most part. There's no real viruses that that run in Linux for the most part. There have been you know I think some over you know occasionally some sort of you know test ones or sort of you know ones you know uh, created in the lab or something like that but nothing really big time in the wild that has affected everybody as far as i understand and and i've run linux servers and i kind of hang out in linux server forums and stuff like uh, web hosting talk and places like that i just i think you know i, I was telling somebody the other day i think i was a a, a sys in a previous life <laughs> i don't know what that says about me um but i just i really think that's cool stuff. So I like reading about that kind of stuff. And I, I don't think there's really anything to worry about for the most part. So, but stay tuned. I think we'll probably do a show on that. All right. I think that's good to do it for the emails for this week. Uh, sort of had a lot of feedback here. I don't want to bore you reading a ton of emails. So I think we're going to wrap it up for this week. Okay, everybody. Well, that's going to do it for this week um, on the Linksys NSLU-2, the slug. And, uh, you know, I should have given a little disclaimer. I have absolutely no interest, financial or otherwise, in the Linksys Corporation. So you buying or not buying a Linksys slug makes no difference to me. (laughs) I just think it's a really cool device, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I just think hacking things like this... um, makes it makes it a lot of fun to play with and you know i personally think this shows why hardware manufacturers should consider making firmwares and things open source i think they're so afraid to do that they think that there's all this proprietary or you know intellectual property tied up in their firmware i really think that having a device with open source firmware is going to create a community around it just like linksys has done with their router and now with the slug there's a whole community of people that are buying these devices because of the openness that maybe wouldn't have otherwise. I, I would not have bought this device or, or, you know, asked for it for Christmas if I, um, if, I didn't, uh, if I knew I couldn't run Debian on it. That's just, you know, I just think that's really cool. So anyway, if any hardware man- manufacturers are listening, open up your firmware, please. All right, I think uh, next week we're going to you know, continue picking up on some other topics, kind of bouncing around, and I'm working on some interviews. So I think that will work out well, I hope. hope to have some interviews, and I'm going to kind of scatter them around. I'm not going to do them all at once, and I you know, kind of want to do them slowly and bring them out. I think we've got some cool things lined up. So please stay tuned. Please stay subscribed. Check out the forums and sign up in the forums if you haven't already. We're only a few people short of 1,000, so I'd love to get to 1,000 by next week's episode. And check out the IRC uh, channel as well on freenode.net pound Linux Reality or hash Linux Reality. Take care, everyone. Have a great week and a great weekend, and all that good stuff. And I'll catch you next time. This has been episode sixty-five of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye bye.